there we go with that special Wednesday opening theme music. It is the Bridge Daily. I am Peter Mansbridge, but on Wednesdays, we have the podcast within a podcast, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. And this is a special Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth for this Wednesday. Bruce is in Ottawa, of course, and we got a special guest in Calgary. Kathleen Petty is joining us. And Kathleen is uh, not unfamiliar to, to Bruce and I. I've worked with Kathleen, obviously, for more than a few years at the CBC. And Bruce and Kathleen were on the old Ad Issue panel at different times over the last uh, 10 years or so. So, Kathleen, it's great to have you with us. I know you're busy at the CBC in Calgary these days, as always. But you are also the host of West of Center, which is a really important new podcast. Been out there for a, a couple of months, I guess now, but uh, important because of why. Tell me about it. I've acknowledged that they, you know, they dust off the old folks every once in a while uh, who've been around (laughs) for a considerable length of time, which you uh, kind of alluded to. And we we found, uh, Peter, uh, during the last election, there was this uh, sort of very intense interest in what was going on in Alberta. So we... um, established a pop-up bureau that we called West of Center. And that was sort of a title that I've been working with for a long time because I've always sort of considered uh, Alberta in particular as being sort of West of Center. And you get the reference, right? The center of the universe being not here. And you know where that is, uh, Central Canada for sure. And so we just thought that there was so much going on in this province and there was so much uh, misunderstanding about sort of what made the place tick, what the zeitgeist of the province was, that it was time to start talking not just to Albertans, but to all Canadians and in some form post-election, especially after we saw what happened to Liberals out here, not that that was any big surprise, that we wanted to start telling our stories uh, from, you know, a very decidedly Western point of view and an Alberta point of view. And I was, as you know, born and raised in Calgary even though I spent uh, seven glorious years in Ottawa, which I, I love. But, you know, it, this this place is in my blood. So they figured they'd dust off the old girl and, uh, and put her back to work on air because I hadn't done a lot of on-air stuff after I left Ottawa and came here to be executive producer of news. And, and so here we go. We started almost a year ago. And uh, I can tell you there, there sure hasn't been a shortage of uh, of topics and <laughs> and issues to explore. So it's been a lot of fun. And I want to just thank you while I have the opportunity because The Bridge has been such a hugely successful podcast and you've been so good about uh, helping promote West of Centre and it, it has been noted and it is very much appreciated. Thank you. Well, congratulations on uh, West of Centre and those who were working with you on it because uh, it, it's an important uh, podcast within the kind of Canadian system. It's being recognized that way now because it's uh, it's worked its way up the charts. It does very well in terms of uh, listeners and reaction to it. So good for you. But we're going to put you to work anyway here today. Um, uh, along with Bruce, we're going. It's not really a quiz as such, but it's it's kind of a sense of the hits and misses of the year under different categories. Uh, so we're going to do that. I've got to make sure Bruce is on the line. You are there, my friend. Here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's great to hear Kathleen's voice again. Good. Yeah, and it's great to talk to you again, Bruce. I've missed you. I've missed you both. So I'm, I'm glad we could have a reunion on this. 
So Kathleen's in Calgary. Bruce is in Ottawa. I'm in the center of the universe, Stratford, Ontario. <laughs> um, so let's get going. And uh, let's agree for starters that when you're kind of going through the year in terms starting with kind of the biggest story of the year, I think we all agree what the biggest story of the year is. It was related in one way or another to the pandemic. So let's kind of not set it aside because it kind of hangs over everything, but let's leave the pandemic off our list for the moment and deal with what we think is in effect the second biggest story of the year or the biggest story of the year other than the pandemic. And we'll start Let's start with Kathleen. All right. So being able to start it off on home field advantage, I am actually going to say it's Alberta. I I suppose that's predictable, but uh, I'm not sure the country understands just what's going on here because it's it's a transition. It's a a transformation, but in in many measures, it, it really is existential because I think Albertans are now struggling with trying to understand what their place is in the country and what their future holds. And there are a whole bunch of question marks around that. And of course, the pandemic, as you rightly point out, is sort of the spine of sort of every story because everything is influenced by that. And Jason Kenney likes to talk about all the whammies. I don't know if it's a double or a triple whammy. I think we're up to triple. Uh, But Obviously, oil and gas uh, has had a terrible year. Uh, we have, you know, sort of a growing, I don't think it's big, it's still fringy, but we do have a separatist sentiment that is certainly influencing uh, the conversation here and policies. And we've got a fair deal panel, which I'm not sure how much of the country has paid attention to, but it, it really is a panel that came up with uh, any number of um, recommendations to establish far greater autonomy for Alberta, and um, many of the measures, or at least some of them, equalization for sure, will be the subject of a referendum in the next municipal elections in October of 2021. And then in the midst of that, we have uh, Jason Kenney, uh, who really performed a political miracle uh, to combine two parties and a and turn them into one, and then become premier of the province, is really struggling in the polls, in part because of COVID, but in part because he ran on the economy, on jobs and pipelines, and the economy is, is not doing so well, and the deficit is at $21 billion and counting, and, uh, and he's been criticized quite widely for his reaction to COVID. So, um, you know, what could transpire over the year ahead, sort of laying the groundwork that we've seen this year, I, I think could be, uh, uh, well, I don't think, I know it's going to be a big Canadian story, but I'm not sure uh, how much of the country is actually aware of, uh, I guess, the unsettled nature of the politics and the economics of this province. I think those are all those are all legitimate points. And the last one is one that could apply to, to many parts of the country. We tend at times not to look beyond our own borders in terms of the uh, the troubles that any particular region are, are maybe having. Anyway, let's let's uh, move on. That's all good. Uh, Bruce, what's, uh, what's your pick beyond the pandemic? 
Well, first of all, I just want to say that I think Kathleen's points are really interesting. And I've been studying Alberta opinion and rest of Canada opinion, if I can put it that way, for a long time. I do think we're at a at a different point in the relationship than we've been before. Uh, I do think that it's fair to say that the rest of Canada maybe doesn't understand Alberta, but also, how to put this, I think that there's not that much interest in the rest of Canada in hearing Alberta on some issues because of the way that some Alberta politicians have presented the position of the province in recent years, climate change being one of those issues. And I think it's fair to say that there's a, a divergence of both values and interests, not a complete divergence, but enough that if politicians are kind of rubbing these tectonic plates together, they can create some reaction that's not very helpful. But uh, so thanks, uh, Kathleen, for raising that. I think that is a really interesting issue and it probably will be one that's even more prominent going forward. But for me, the biggest issue besides the pandemic, the thing that has kind of kept me awake at night is the fact that the world's biggest, heretofore maybe most successful democracy is in crisis. Uh, I think that there isn't a day goes by that I don't look at politics in the United States and say it seems completely broken. There are those days when some things go well, but even on those days when some things go well, other things go terribly. And um, there are more days when things seem to be going terribly. And I don't, you know, don't want to end the year and <laughs> this podcast within podcast on a completely series on a series of completely down notes. But you know, just the the sense that Americans spent ten billion dollars on an election and found themselves more divided rather than unified around a set of ideas, uh, less informed perhaps about the choices available to them as a country, and more uh, kind of obnoxious in the way that they prosecute their politics, left versus right and right right versus left, uh, more uh, convinced that their democratic institutions can't be trusted, more determined to try to bend uh, their judicial system so that it becomes an arm of politics. Uh, and then yesterday, you know, just another example that is so disheartening to watch of uh, President Trump rolling out the first of what looked like it's going to be a series of truly obnoxious pardons, uh, including of people that you would look at and go, what is the what is the value for the country of that? What does that say about America's view of what's right and what's wrong? So I, I grew up always thinking that America had flaws, uh, but always thinking that it had a democracy that worked pretty well on the whole. And I don't think I can say that uh, with anywhere near the same confidence anymore. Um, here's mine. My vote. Uh, my vote goes to the. Um well, I guess to the Black Lives Matter movement overall, but it all started with, you know, this year at least, it all started with the death of George Floyd and uh, Breonna Taylor, uh, as it as it did with many others, uh, incidents involving police in different parts of the United States and, quite frankly, in Canada as well. Um, this was all exacerbated by covid but really, it's been happening around the world, the birth of this movement and the reaction to the movement and the demonstrations uh, involved with the movement. But COVID, despite what people say, is not the great equalizer. That's what it was supposed to be, uh, at least when it started. We started to think of that as the great equalizer, but it wasn't. 
Um, it has exposed the inequalities in our systems in a big way. So, yes, COVID's the biggest story, but uh, BLM, Black Lives Matter, may be the most important and profound of the year, depending on where this all leads, and not just for um, you know black Americans, but for, uh, for people of color and for indigenous people uh, across North America. Uh, and through it all, it caused, or perhaps it, you know, it, it should have caused all of us, every single one of us, to examine our own biases, racism, and our own behaviors, and uh, as a result, be better. So that's that's where I am. Um, Although in a lot of ways, Peter, um, you know, I, I know you wanted to talk about the most unexpected story of the year, and actually Black Lives Matter and the reaction to George Floyd uh, was my pick for that, because as you point out, I, the racism and systemic racism has always been there, but it hasn't been sort of recognized and it hasn't been, um, you know, something that we talked about with, with any sort of commitment and, and lasting um, understanding, uh, deep understanding that it wasn't something to sort of cover and move on from, uh, that, that this is uh, a challenge that, uh, you know, all people must confront and be honest with themselves about uh, where they have fallen short. And so in, in many ways, it's such a personal story as well, but it, it, it it's an issue that I think a lot of people are struggling with. Some, I think, are doing a better job than others are struggling with it. But as you point out, uh, you know, again, we connect back to COVID and the pandemic, and it laid bare the inequities. Uh, many inequities that I don't know that any of us really recognize. And I'll just go back to what Bruce was talking about when he talks about the U.S. being more divided than it's ever been. I don't know that it is more divided. I just think we're more aware of it. I I, I do think that, uh, you know, we were probably kidding ourselves. And one of the things I've learned as a journalist is that we're, um, we're pretty good at covering the symptoms of things. We're not very good at uh, figuring out uh, what, what sort of the core issue, dilemma, um, the core contradictions, the sort of the the, the core uh, problem is. We're we're always sort of addressing the symptoms, and we're not going deeper. I, you know, the one of the areas that I um, worry about in terms of you know, the whole movement around Black Lives Matter. And it is, you know, obviously it's not just Black Lives Matter. It goes beyond that. But my concern is, while this was a moment in time, especially the summer of 2019 on this issue, and everybody seemed to step forward, or just about everybody seemed to step forward, that they're going to make a difference, They're going to, this is going to change. And what I worry about is that it just becomes another moment in time, the summer of 2019, it was all going to change, but did it. Um, I hope I'm wrong on that, but I, I worry about that. But Kathleen, you neatly moved it into the next category, which was the unexpected story of the year by placing that one as your unexpected story of the year. Um, Bruce, uh, what's yours? And remember, um, if we're, if we're going to get through this list, and I include myself in this, 
uh, we better make our points sharper and quicker. <laughs> but uh, fire away, Bruce, on on your most unexpected. Well, I actually did have two, but one of them was Black Lives Matter. And I'm not going to get into that because you guys covered that uh, that thought, and I agree with the, with what you said. Uh, I think the question of the momentum remains to be seen, but I think more was made uh, this year than we've seen in a long, long time. More was revealed too, but uh, I guess for me, when the pandemic hit, it was possible to imagine a situation where momentum on the climate change issue was going to stop. That everybody was going to down tools who were trying to push towards uh, reduction of carbon emissions, innovation with clean technologies, investment driving towards uh, those organizations and uh, researchers and innovators that were trying to find ways to uh, build the next generation lower carbon economy. And that didn't happen. Uh, and I think you know, it's perhaps the most encouraging thing for me when I think about the major crises that, that kind of beset the world right now, and there's certainly no shortage of them. Climate is right up there for me, and uh, it has been for the last several years, and I've been watching with some kind of hopefulness that all of the momentum uh, that has developed in recent years. And even in the last election campaign, where of the conservatives made opposition to carbon pricing uh, central to their strategy. They said that if you elect us, bill number one will be to repeal carbon pricing. And they did that because they thought that was going to be overwhelmingly popular. That was going to be the ticket to success in the election campaign. And the liberals were a little bit apprehensive about whether or not they were going to be able to carry that on their shoulders and convince Canadians that they deserved to be uh, reelected. And you know, the election turned out to be a bunch of about a bunch of other things. It didn't turn out to be very much about that. And the momentum has continued in terms of the movement of capital, the shifting habits of business, and um, the reorganization of the automotive sector, uh, the innovations in terms of technology. Uh, I'm very hopeful, by the way, for Alberta that it can kind of shake itself loose of this. Uh, on the one hand, we see a transition coming around the world. On the other hand, we just want to blame Justin Trudeau for it. Um, it's a global phenomena. Public opinion in Alberta says we see it as a global phenomena and we want to be part of the next generation of opportunities. I think they need political leadership that, that kind of encourages them to go that way. But everywhere else in the country uh, so far, we see lots of momentum and certainly around the world, we see gigantic momentum. And I read something just this morning about uh, the movement of capital and projection going forward. So uh, I'm encouraged by that. I'm going to give you a short snapper for my answer on the uh, most unexpected story of the year. Murder hornets. That was unexpected. <laughs> I didn't I didn't see that one coming. I mean, we should have seen it coming, you know, 2020 and all. Well, if you do see it coming, hide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I never thought we'd be talking about murder hornets. So if you had that on your 2020 news bingo card, you should... Um, you should get a medal of some sort. Uh, okay, uh, here we go. These are kind of short snappers, so make your make your case. Um, and and uh, Bruce, you start us here. Who was the most overrated Canadian of the year? Well, you know, funnily, I don't think Canadians overrate anybody as a general rule. But if I had to give an answer to that, I would say Jason Kenney. I think that that Jason Kenney, I knew. In Ottawa, he came out of Ottawa, went into Alberta as somebody who was considered to be one of the smartest 
the most clever, most thoughtful uh, conservatives that you could find anywhere in Canada. And I just don't think that um, his performance in that role, notwithstanding the fact that he's dealt with the headwinds that Kathleen mentioned of uh, economic and oil price and pandemic and so on, it doesn't seem to me that it has been um, what what I would have expected, and I think what a lot of people would have expected in terms of that that kind of the discipline and the mind and the thoughtfulness. And I think it's kind of been a little bit more rhetorical and a little bit all over the map. So that's my thing. Kathleen? I sort of feel like I'm picking on conservatives now because after <laughs> Jason Kenney, I'm going to say Aaron O'Toole, frankly. Uh, you know, the expectations, uh, I, I think, were uh, that just by not being Andrew here, uh, it would be a game changer for the Conservative Party. And I don't think that's what we're seeing. I still think he's largely unknown. He's, uh, you know, obviously in part because uh, the focus is on the pandemic. But, you know, even his sort of struggle to come up with a response to what Bruce was talking about a little earlier about, you know, how to address climate change. He hasn't had much to say other than he doesn't like carbon taxes. Uh, he will say he's going to do something, quote, serious and quote, smart. And he readily acknowledged that the party under Andrew Scheer uh, hadn't done much of a job of sort of laying it out. But I think we're still waiting for that. And he's trying to position himself in a way. I heard him say the other day, this is how he describes it. There are four parties on the quote extreme left. And uh, he's the one in the center, center right. And, and uh, you know, he's trying to expand his base and reaching out to um, union workers, those in the private sector. Uh, not, not the public sector, but specifically the private sector. And, you know, that, that may uh, bear fruit and maybe it's too early to judge, but I think most people assume there's going to be an election in 2021. And, uh, you know, Bruce was the pollster, but I don't see much happening for him. Yeah, his, um, his start... It kind of, you know, I think there was a great deal of expectation around uh, O'Toole as things started. But in these first few months, he seems to have proved once again that uh, that the Conservatives' biggest political foes these days are, in fact, themselves, uh, which doesn't help. Um, anyway, I'm not, pay- <laughs> I'm not picking Aaron O'Toole now because you already did that. But what I am going to do is pick a band. Um, and, and that band is a political band, and it's a, comprised of the the four players: Legault, Ford, Kenny, and Mo, um, who together, you know, they kind of set themselves up when this whole thing started as this is a this is a group that can really deal with things and deal with issues and deal with a big situation like the pandemic. But frankly, their pandemic responses, you know, have been at best, well, not very good. And at worst, they've been they've been deadly in some cases, and so I uh, I'm not I'm I think they have been overrated. Um, let's have a little more fun and talk about who's been underrated this year. And here I I, I get to start on this one. Um, you're going to laugh because they're they're both famous uh, people, uh, but together Ryan Reynolds and Haley Wickenheiser. They organized a massive PPE drive when the country needed it the most. Ryan donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to food banks in both the U.S. and in Canada. He did a PSA to stay home for millennials. 
including joking about how his uh, insatiable mom was also struggling not acting on her Tinder matches. Um, and when a young woman had the teddy bear uh, that her late mom had given her stolen, he offered cash to have it returned. Now, these may seem like little things, but uh, you know, I think that they really touched nerves within and cords within Canadians and their their desire to help others. Uh, and they spurred on, in many cases, the national campaign. I think of Haley Wickenheiser and the things she did. Um, you know, she's a, you know, we all know her as a hockey star, but she's a doctor. She's at the front lines. She took the time beyond that to, to organize drives like these. And they made a real difference. And I think as much as we think of those two, we actually underrate them because of uh, the fact of the extra things they did this year. So that's that's my take. Um, Kathleen, you're next. Underrated. First of all, I just want to say I love your picks. Uh, th- th- those are those are great picks. And I, I do think that Canadians, I think it sort of helped Canadians um, see what's possible. You know, I, I think you thought, ah, oh, that's what a Canadian does. Oh, okay. Well, I'm a Canadian, so I can do great things too. So I just want to say uh, kudos for, for picking Ryan and Haley. I think that's great. I, you know, I'm going to go with uh, a politician, and that's Anime Paul, because, um, you know, Canada's first black leader of a federal party, um, relatively unknown, still really unknown. Uh, but but I think she's got the potential to be a big driver of Green Party growth. And anyone who's watched her interviewed, whether, whether you agree with the platform of the Green Party or not, uh, you can't help but be impressed with her. Uh, she's so very smart and uh, and a wonderful communicator, I think. And the Green Party uh, for so long, I think, was uh, – defined by its leader. It was sort of more the Elizabeth May party than the Green Party. And I, I I think she's got the potential to, you know, take the party forward as opposed to just herself. I, she seems to have the skills and the depth uh, to, to move it forward and sort of establish the brand of the party. Now she just needs a seat and she needs to run uh, someplace where she can actually win. Um and, and then it's going to be interesting to see the urge to compare and contrast with the NDP, whose grasp she'll inevitably mow if she's successful. Okay. Bruce? Yeah, I, uh, look, I like all those picks. For me, it's a group of people. It's the service workers who um, had their lives thrown into disarray, found themselves in situations where the sense of risk of their health was quite significant. And yet every day, you know, I feel like I'm able to get up and if I have to go to the grocery store and get some food for um, for us to eat, there are people there who are stocking those shelves, who are checking out uh, our groceries and taking money at the, at the cash register. And I know a lot of people have commented on this over the course of the year. And, and you know, I think generally we can all say that people who are on the front lines of the health system have a particular, uh, are owed a particular debt of gratitude. But I also think that people who work in all of those other industries that we consider to be essential, where we, we really require people to stock the food shelves, to um, pick the produce, to uh, make sure that it's there for us if we, when we need it, um, 
I've just been so impressed with the kind of quiet fortitude of, uh, of people across the country. And I, I just, if I can add one last little thing, which is that in years before, we often had these debates about minimum wage, and they became kind of quite political, where uh, I think people who are kind of on the progressive side of uh, the spectrum would say, well, why? Why does it make sense that affluent people who are making big salaries and seeing their uh, portfolio values go up because stock markets are going up um, should be the only ones to benefit from a relatively healthy economy and we hold down minimum wages? And there, there were a lot of politicians, or some politicians anyway, who were saying, no, 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 we can't increase minimum wages because it will be the ruination of the economy. And I don't happen to believe that that's true. I don't happen to believe that it was fair. And I am kind of hopeful that coming out of the pandemic that we recognize the uh, the value of, uh, of workers and these deals going forward. Um, Kathleen? Oh, you want to go under? I've already talked about uh, uh, Anime Paul. So I, yes, you know, I'm, no, going that, to, I'm, I'm, sorry, I'm going to, right. I'm going to agree with Bruce. Right. Uh, I, and I'm glad. I'm glad both of you picked. I mean, I went for a politician. I thought you guys would have been the ones going for the politician. Yeah, we like we like that. Um, we're we're you know we're center. We're center. You know, we don't just talk about politicians <laughs> here in the center <laughs> too much. It's so funny <laughs> that I went for the politician. <laughs> uh, you guys were you yeah know, much sort of now, on the ground I and live here. They were going to do. Most overrated global figure. Is that what's coming up next? That is Does what's that coming up next, and Kathleen gets us started. All right. Okay. Well, here's what this is a bit of a dodge, uh, but I'm, I don't know that any of them matter all that much. I mean, putting Trump aside, he's sort of an outlier in every category. Um, but uh, not, not that anyone overrates Donald Trump. I'm not even remotely suggesting that. I'm just saying. When I, look, I actually think this is the year of local leaders, not global leaders. Everything is so local right now that um, none of the national leaders, to my mind, to Canadians' minds, I think, matter very much. I, I think uh, people are paying a lot more attention to what they're, you know, in terms of leaders, what their premiers are doing, what their municipal leaders are doing, what their community leaders are doing. and. Uh, COVID, in large measure, is very much a local story at its core. And, of course, it is the, the issue, the challenge that everyone is uh, struggling with on every single level because it's sort of defining our lives from the moment we get up to uh, when we go to bed and everything that happens in between. In some cases, not that much happens in between because not that much can happen. But so much of it is determined, I I feel despite sort of the high profile of sort of national leaders in news conferences uh, every day, and obviously a lot of seniors are as well, but I do think it's the local uh, leadership that people are take, paying attention to right now and the sort of the global um, sort of view of the world has been diminished to a great degree. I like that. Bruce. So for uh, overrated global figure of the year, and, and maybe if you will, Peter, I'll also add my underrated global figure uh, of the year. Overrated for me is either Boris Johnson or Jared Kushner. Uh, I don't know how much I had in way of expectations about Boris Johnson, but it's pretty hard not to look at the UK and say, what a mess they've got there. 
And if it wasn't for there being an even bigger mess in the United States, you'd say that, that democracy in the UK is, is broken uh, worse than anything we can see anywhere. Uh, and I think that the performance um, of his government on the pandemic has been horrible, on Brexit has been horrible, and uh, doesn't look like he's got any idea of a path forward. But Jared Kushner is a, is kind of a headliner in this category because, of course, he started the year with more on his plate. The things that he was going to solve for the world and America was a longer to-do list than I can remember anybody in public life ever being gifted uh, with, let alone by somebody in their family. Um, and I know that there are, uh, there are experts in the policy field who say that there was some progress made in the Middle East. But on pretty much everything else, I think the guy looks as though he he had uh, no experience, no particular skills to bring. Was working inside a government that was completely chaotic and, and devoid of any sense of real purpose, other than the promotion of the family um, value proposition. And and uh, I think he's you know, he was overrated and he was a monumental failure. The uh, underrated uh, figure for me is Joe Biden. I think that uh, I was remembering that it was. There was a three-week patch uh, in um, February where he lost half of his support in the polls and went from being the presumptive winner uh, very early in the primary season to uh, somebody who was considered to be an inevitable loser for the third time uh, as he competed for the presidency. And, of course, now he's, he's heading into that role, and he seems to have the country sort of at least maybe a half and a little bit more of the country uh, looking at him and saying, okay, maybe this was the right choice. Maybe this is the calming influence and the steadying influence that we need. Okay. Uh, you managed to uh, to get all of that into one answer and good for you. Um, so let me, <laughs> let me, let me pick it up in the same way. Um, uh, overrated. I know we're getting later to a media question, but I, I think the overrated figure of the year uh global figure of the year has generally been the media and you could pick any number of different actors from the media landscape. Uh, I can think of a couple from Fox. I can think of at least one from CNN. Um, my issue is that the media as good a job as it can do, it really failed on the misinformation front this year that it allowed misinformation to take over to an extent today. Um, where it dominates um, the news collection areas for most citizens because of social media. And there hasn't been a, an aggressive enough uh, attempt on the part of the media in general to deal with that, and in some cases, uh, including the ones I've named, have fed it, uh, which is inexcusable. It's to the point now where I heard somebody suggesting this morning on on one of the morning programs, that the only way to defeat defeat misinformation now is to teach the dangers of misinformation in grade school, that it's too late now for generations past grade school. They're totally into it and hooked and can't shake it. But if they can get to a, the, the next generation, so to speak, early, they can teach it what the dangers are and what to look out for. I thought that was interesting. Underrated. I'm actually going to pick an international leader, but I, I, I also I'm, I'm hearing what Kathleen says because in some ways she's a local leader because they're kind of remote and isolated, but it's the New Zealand 
uh, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. Um, she's <laughs> she's been quite remarkable on a number of big issues in the last couple of years, but uh, very much so on the, on the pandemic. Um, we tend to fo- focus as we do on the Trumps and Johnsons and Macrons and and uh, you know even the Trudeaus uh, of the world, and yet she's quietly uh, killing it as the New Zealand Prime Minister. So. So good for her. Um, so you get the, um, Kathleen, you're most underrated, and that moves us out of those categories. So your most underrated is whom? Well, first of all, I'll just say, I think the Prime Minister of New Zealand, I, I mean, I, I would disagree with you there, only I don't think she has been underrated at all. I, th- I think people uh, have been holding her up as sort of like almost a, an icon in terms of the response to COVID. So I think she's been... Uh, that is lauded uh, quite uh, uh, widely. Uh, so, but I mean, she—it's been fascinating to sort of watch her. And I would also suggest that there are actually a lot of women out there doing um, really amazing work in terms of leadership. Like Angela Merkel mm-hmm. is another one that I would point out, who's actually a scientist and talks like a scientist. And uh, you want to talk about. Uh, confronting misinformation, I boy, she would be my go-to gal. Uh, but in, in terms of sort of picking one person, I actually uh, don't have to go on for too long because uh, we, we, you'll be relieved to hear that, Peter. Uh, because I agree with Bruce. I think it's Joe Biden. You know, he was seen by many as just, you know, a, a weak candidate, uh, especially early in the primaries, that even after winning the nomination, um, that that sort of sense of him persisted. And, and the belief that the, the only way he was going to win, if he was going to win, is because he was running against the, the most historically flawed candidate in U.S. history. Yeah, I, you know what? I'd like to see the first 100 days before I pass the big judgment on, on Joe Biden. I mean, I've followed his career since the 80s, and, I, you know, I, th- there's a lot to like about what's been done. There are also some major question marks hanging over him and his abilities. Um we're about to find out. It's hard to judge things right now, but clearly you're both right. He won. So, you know, you can't take that away from him. Uh, and and you may argue that he won in a race that would have been extremely difficult for any of the others who were on that list, the Democratic uh, potential list as, as presidential candidates. So, anyway, I'd, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to making... Uh, more judgments after after 100 days. All right, uh, here we go. And, and and Bruce, you start this. What was the year's moment or event that you most enjoyed in the year? Well, it was the day that Trump lost the election. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Why am I not surprised to hear that? <laughs> close, uh, close second or first sometimes, it was the day that we learned that the vaccines that are I think, uh, you know, everybody that I, that I observed and in our research, we were, we were seeing for several years, really, that the biggest story for most Canadians every day, every week, was Donald Trump. And uh, he was more unpopular in Canada than any president whose popularity I've measured, and I've been measuring them for almost 40 years, uh, and by quite a wide margin. and. Um, and so I think there was a, you know, a huge sense of relief uh, for a lot of people in Canada, certainly for me, 
that we weren't going to have to imagine four more years of um, what kind of damage he was doing to the conversation that the world was having about different issues and, um, and the unity of, uh, of America on those issues. Uh, but I do think that the vaccine story was one where you could almost feel a, an exhalation uh, as people allowed themselves for the first time to to really see the end of uh, this awful pandemic that we've been living through. And while it's not done yet, um, and obviously we all kind of hear the admonitions to keep our behavior in, in the right in the right zone and to take care of other people by being careful. Um, uh, it's hard for me to imagine a, a happier story than that, uh, except possibly when Trump won. All right. Um, here's my pick. Banging pots and pans. That was the most enjoyable moment for me of the year, uh, which we did here in Stratford every night at 7.30 for uh, March, April, May, into June. Um, we're not doing it now, which is kind of odd. I mean, some people are, but... Uh, but, you know, we stopped in the summer. But there was something about it that truly made us feel like we were all into it together. I mean, watching neighbors up and down the street, some of whom I'd never talked to before, <laughs> barely ever seen. Suddenly, we were sharing this moment every night um, together, and that, that kind of bond between the neighbors has remained, even though the 730 event has, has stopped. Um so I think it, you know, it was one of those moments that signified the good in what can be accomplished on the part of uh, of neighbors and society at a time when you know good is uh, is needed. Kathleen, well, I'm I'm going to uh, this might be cheating, but I'm going to sort of turn that question into a bit of a pretzel because I'm I'm it's not an event so much as it, it's actually a book that I read this year. And I have to say, I, I don't read as many books as I once did uh, because I'm reading, you know, stories and articles and, and I find it hard. Uh, I find it more difficult all the time to get through books. I'll be honest. I think they all need better editors. Uh, they're too long. Um, but one that I read and devoured was Humankind by Rupert Bregman. I, I don't know if, You've read it. I highly recommend it. It's uh, he's the the guy went to Davos uh, and basically uh, tore strips off of all of them for being hypocrites. And then he went on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox and destroyed Carlson to the point where they didn't air the interview. So he posted it on YouTube. And the book is um, was restorative, honestly, uh, in terms of how I see people on this earth, including myself, because what was wonderful about it in the midst of all this misery, because there's been so much misery this year, is he has a, his hypothesis is that people are at their core good. We are good. Our instincts are good. Um, that, that we're, you know, not at our core sort of evil, um, that, that there isn't avarice is not natural. And uh, that we have to sort of um, rediscover uh, all the wonderful things that we're capable of. And in a year of misery, uh, that was a really important uh, message to read. I mean, he backs it up with data. And, you know, it's not just all 
sort of his imaginings. I mean, it's, he offers a lot of really interesting um, uh, stories that sort of back up his premise. But I like the idea that uh, at our core, we're good and we can do good and we need to rediscover that. Yeah, I listened to a podcast with him, I just want to say, and it was uh, it was maybe the best thing I've listened to all year. And, uh, so I recommend that as well. Better, better than listening to us back again. Even better than that. Well, you know, <laughs> you don't have to answer that question. All right, I, I'm going to jump ahead of here a little bit in our in our uh, list because I want to get. We're already past the 40 minute mark here, and I want to get into some some short snappers. So, in other words, like one sentence answers. Um, and uh, I'm not sure who's up first. I think. I think Bruce is up first here on this one. Um, what did you watch the most of this year? And I, I'm, I'm talking about television, all right? We've all been yeah, in many ways isolated. Of- what, what did you watch the most of this year? I watched a lot of political TV in the middle of the night. If I was having trouble sleeping, for some reason, I, I got into watching people sailing around the world single-handedly. I don't know how to sail. I've always thought it would be kind of fun to do something like that. And lo and behold, I find on YouTube, there are endless, endless hours of people documenting their voices around the world. And uh, I think the, the, the entertainment TV that I watch, that I'm really into right now, is the Bureau. It's a French TV a program, a spy program, and I highly recommend it. But the sailing was the surprise thing for me because, as I say, I've never done it. I thought it would be kind of fun, and I found the, lots of it out there. I've spent more time watching streaming services uh, than conventional television by a long shot. Um, Really, really this year, more than anything. And the one I watched the most of, enjoyed the most of, was Fauda, which is an Israeli television series, uh, which is incredible. Uh, If you don't mind reading the show, because it's all subtitles. Um, Kathleen. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you two quickies. Uh, I have uh, a bunch of episodes of Boston Legal, <laughs> which uh, is one of my favorite shows of all time with uh, William Shatner. So there's the Canadian component. Uh, and I just I just am so thoroughly entertained by it. But the other one I'll just mention on regular TV is I suspect I might have to retire in Laurel, Mississippi, uh, because uh, ATTV has a show called Hometown where they uh, renovate these homes and people buy them for like, I don't know, $20,000. And then they put $70,000 in them for a hundred thousand. You've got like the most beautiful home you've ever seen. And I'm totally and completely addicted to HGTV and those programs in particular. So those are my guilty pleasures. Yeah. I'll have to admit, I watch too much HGTV. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot easier to watch how they renovate than to try to do it yourself. You got that straight. Next question. What did you eat the most of this year? And I go first here on this one. And my answer is everything. Uh, I'm playing at my (laughs) pandemic weight now, and I've got to do something about that because I've, I've just eaten so much this year as I've been bad about that. Um, uh, Kathleen, what did you eat the most this year? Honestly, chips. I ate a lot of chips. I'm sort of, I'm addicted to salt. I don't know if you read that book years ago. I can't remember what order it's in salt, sugar, fat or fat, sugar, salt. Um, 
anyway, it was sort of about the fast food industry and how scientists figured out how to get you addicted to stuff. And I always remember the uh, part about potato chips that they um, that they designed it in such a way that the uh, taste was intense, but it disappeared quickly, so that you would uh, you know have to go get another one right away to get a hit. Well, that's been me in 2020. <laughs> Bruce is a great cook. I like he's like he's seriously a really good cook. Uh, but what did you eat the most of this year? I'm clearly fond of Old Dutch, which I think is a Western uh, a Western brand that we eat. But um, I'm with guessing on chips. But my answer is Italian food. I love Italian food. I love thinking about being in Italy. Uh, I'm involved in two Italian restaurants now as an investor. We just opened another one up. Uh, our second one up. Uh, I guess about a month ago, really, in the middle of the pandemic, a lot of people wondering whether or not that was the right idea to do, but it's going really well as a takeout place, and uh, and I sample the uh, the food quite regularly. <laughs> All right, back yeah. into the mainstream of questions, um, but still with the short, snappy answers. Uh, what Canadian figure has had the best year? Uh, and uh, Bruce, you go first this time. Very the, uh, the president of Unifor is my pick for that. I mean, I, uh, he's, he got a lot done this year, and he was a useful voice in a lot of conversations, but most particularly because I think that a lot of people looked at the GM decision to shut down the plant in Oshawa as being the death knell for Canadian auto manufacturing. And he maintained that that wasn't going to be how that story was going to end. And I think a lot of people said, well, yeah, you're supposed to do that. You, that's your job to to kind of make the pretense that you can turn that decision around. And lo and behold, a couple of years later, uh, he did turn that decision around. And that uh, that plan is going to um, see an injection of new investment. And there's uh, a lot of potential, I think, for Canada to participate in the e-vehicle uh, manufacturing sector going forward, in part because of his advocacy uh, around the idea that Canada should be in that business and must be in that business. And, and he convinced a lot of people in government to support him in that. So uh, a good winning year for, uh, for Jerry, uh, for sure. My, um, my pick for the Canadian figure, who had the best year, is actually four of them, but they're all together. John, David, Alexis, and Moira Rose, the cast of Shit's Creek. I actually <laughs> said that word on, on the podcast. So I'm very proud of myself for figuring out a way of saying it. Uh, they swept the Emmys. They're media royalty now, and they're really so damn likable this was their year they put a smile on a so many of our faces uh in a year that was difficult to smile they won the year and all the awards so good for them um kathleen i i'm gonna go with mark carney uh you know he's been a a big figure for a long time uh when you know bank of canada bank of england uh now the un special envoy for climate action um, you know, there's an aura around Mark Kearney, and he, he sort of seems to operate at a level uh, unlike almost any other public figure I can think of, not just domestically, but internationally. And he seems to sort of have the royal jelly. There's, uh, you know, I, I've interviewed him, as I know you have, uh, Peter. There's something uh, um, really sort of charismatic about him. I mean, he's he's who knows if he ever gets involved in, in politics in any real way, 
that has a habit of uh, taking the shine off, as we all know. But, you know, he, he does come across as, as, as someone um, who has uh, principled stands on issues, climate change uh, among them, but also, you know, some authority. And he's, he's about to have more opinions, perhaps, than he's uh, had in the past, although he's certainly had them, but I mean sort of more broadly. So I'm going to go with Mark Turney. Uh, somebody who I don't think we've heard the last of, because um, I agree. I think yeah. uh, you know the, he would love to be in uh, in a role of public service, elected public service. I'm sure uh, if he could be, but um, we'll see whether how that plays out. Um, let's go to the Canadian figure who had the worst year, uh, and well, I'll start. Um, you know, and I'm cautious about this because they're friends of mine, uh, and I've worked with them in the past. And I can remember, especially Craig Kielberger, when he was just you know 12 or 13 years old, and was starting to make headlines. But the Kielbergers had a brutal year, um, and some of it was self-imposed. Um, they clearly exposed some faults in the way they've been operated, and. It, that is a shame because there's no question that these two guys, Craig and his brother Mark, um, you know, did inspire a generation to engage with charities, even if um, the year kind of ends with their own charity being somewhat suspect. Um, but they had a really, they had a bad year. Uh, Bruce. Yeah, yeah, I had trouble with this one, I'll be honest with you. I mean, my first thought, um, was uh, Michelle Rample Garner because I saw her as somebody who had so much potential to contribute positively to Canadian politics, and I don't think she's done that. I think she was particularly unhelpful in the, in the debate about uh, vaccines and the pandemic response, and on some immigration issues too. But uh, I finally settled on Rex Murphy. Um, this is somebody that uh, that we probably all know, and uh, I used to spend quite a bit of time talking with Rex and. At dinner with him a couple of times and, and enjoyed those conversations. And I find myself reading what he writes now and being quite disappointed in it. Um, and, and kind of observing that he is, um, squandering the credibility that he had accumulated over a lifetime of, uh, of journalism and hosting, uh, cross country checkup and participating in CBC panels and, uh, I was disappointed to see that. I think he had a bad year. I think his reputation has taken a hit because of the way that he's making the arguments that he's making, as well as the, in some cases the arguments that he's making for sure. So he, he would be like that. Kathleen? Sorry, just taking a swig of Fresca. That's the other thing I've consumed a lot this year. <laughs> I'm addicted to Fresca. I'm just gonna ask you. Fresca and chips. Boy, it's a wonder I'm still alive. It's <laughs> um, quite the diet. <laughs> no, no, he's got that. I, I I I sort of feel like we're picking on him. I don't mean to because I know that uh, he he came up in the previous question and I brought him up. But I've got to go with Jason Kenney. I just think he's had a miserable year. Um, nothing seems to be going very well for him. He's uh, you know he's having problems on his right flank. I'm not you know look this is now and who knows what happens two years from now. But nothing has really gone his way. And he's sort of getting it from all sides, I would say. 
excuse me. And so I, you know, this was the job he wanted, but I, I wonder if this is the job he wanted <laughs> because um, no one could have predicted that this was what he was going to walk into. And I, I think he's, uh, I think he's struggling. I'm going to be really interested to see what happens in 2021. And I will say this too, um, to be fair to him, I, I don't know that there's another political leader in the country, certainly no provincial leader in the country, uh, grappling with the same uh, set of really challenging and confounding issues as he is. And I, I'm not sure um, how anyone else would have performed. Uh, they would have performed differently, obviously, because they're different people. But I, I, I think this is difficult for anyone. And it's truly uh, testing them. And I'll be interested to see uh, what 2021 looks like. Okay, um, we're, we're into the last couple of questions here, and I'm going to combine two to go into this one. And it, it's about the media, okay? Uh, and it's, you know, the best media moment of the year and the worst media moment of the year. Um, you can either do both or pick one. Uh, but, uh, Bruce, you can start. You know, I'll pick the worst media moment of the year, and, and it's, it's the worst for me because it, it's consistent with something that I've seen over a lengthy period of time developing where I, I don't know the reason why exactly, but um, the way that the media reacted to Prime Minister Trudeau asking for some time to speak to the nation, 10, 15 minutes, I forget exactly how much it was, um, about the pandemic in the run-up to Thanksgiving, I guess, um, really struck me as being kind of tone deaf in terms of not understanding the public that they're there to serve. There was almost this implied, how could he be, uh, how could he not understand that our role is to sit in the middle of the conversation between a prime minister and the people uh, who are uh, voters in the country? And doesn't he know how valuable 15 minutes of uh, TV time at six o'clock or whatever it was in the evening uh, central time really is. And both of those just seem really odd to me. And they seem like a, that the media were, were not understanding how interested people are in the pandemic. And whether they thought much of what the prime minister said, whether he said very much, to me is kind of beside the point. It, it sort of struck me as being a reminder that that a lot of news organizations often try to imagine a bigger controversy than the public is prepared to uh, to see. And so a story will kind of blow up into a big thing for a couple of days. And then eventually I guess editors or assignment editors will realize that not very many people are paying attention to it and the story will go away, but the, the syndrome will happen again. And so I think that there's you certainly an argument that there's a disconnect between politicians and voters on a lot of things, but I think that media and the people that they, uh, that they serve, uh, the audience. Uh, there's also a pretty big gap there uh, most days, and that was a pretty telling episode for me. Kathleen? Yeah, I don't know. Let me jump in on that one, because uh, that's not the one I would pick. But I will just say that I think part of it was he was on the airwaves every single day, like all the time. And, uh, and I mean all the time. I, I know because I was, I was asked to join our network coverage all the time to talk about it. 
And so I think that was part of it, Bruce, honestly. It was, uh, you know, there was, I, I think, an expectation uh, that we would hear more from him other than what we were hearing every day anyway. So that was part of it. And, uh, and, and I don't, you know, there is a certain expectation when you sort of take over that, you know, it's sort of like a command uh, performance, a command broadcast, uh, command coverage. I mean, we were doing it anyway. And so I think that was part of it. Um, and, and the other thing I'll, I'll just sort of add to that is I think, that, you know, we're now in the accountability phase uh, more fully than we have been over the course of the pandemic. And that's been sort of interesting to watch because I, I do think, you know, sort of getting to the best and worst uh, journals and things. I, I do wonder if the accountability on some of the decisions uh, being made uh, came too late. I think part of it was sort of a sensitivity that we're in a crisis and you just want to sort of get stuff done and help people and, and do, you know, I suppose bring the country together and not try and create divisions, but I'm, I'm not sure that that's actually the job of journalism. And, and I do wonder whether the, the accountability on a lot of decisions that we're starting to see now uh, came too late. And, and so it's now like a hindsight is 2020 uh, kind of coverage that we're doing now. And, uh, and it sort of exposes maybe where we failed. Yeah, I, I got to say that I, I think the debate around accountability and how uh, how soon the, the media should have been on the accountability charge is a good one to have. And I'm, you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I don't mind saying that at the beginning, uh, I thought it was more important to get information out to the public on what was happening on the day um, than it was to uh, argue about how soon certain things had been done, when you did this, when did you find out that, what was the first meeting you had, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I knew that was all going to come, and it is coming, and you're right about that. And some of it is is a dark picture that's being painted of, uh, of some of the way things were handled, uh, and I'm thinking more specifically in the provinces than, uh, than in Ottawa, but it'll all come out in the wash uh, at the end, and, and people will be accountable and should be accountable. Um and, you know, I was always suspicious of provinces that went rushing to the polls as quickly as they could, um, knowing full well that this wasn't over yet. Anyway, um, that's that. My, my worst media moment of the year was actually, I'll take it outside of Canada. It was the day Trump got out of hospital. And that, that kind of Hollywood attempt to glamorize his flight on a helicopter from the hospital from Walter Reed to the White House and his eventual standing on the balcony doing take one and take two or whatever of a, of a message to, uh, to voters. Uh, I thought that the media fell for that, you know, in, in such a fashion. They, they, the whole thing was staged like it was a scene from, uh, you know, some big Hollywood movie. And uh, and the media played its role in encouraging that, and I thought that was that was not a great moment uh, for anybody in, in on any channel and any version of the media uh, on that night. Um, okay, let's go to the last one because we're uh, man, we're uh, well over an hour. Um, and here it is. 
And we'll end on a positive note, okay? What was the best political choice of the year? Now, it could be Canadian, it could be outside of the country, but who made the best political choice of the year and what actually was it? Um, let's see, who can start on this one? Um, Kathleen. Okay. Uh, putting Kirstie Freeland into finance, I think, was by far uh, the best political choice of the year. Um, she is uh, one of those rare individuals that that seems to be able to uh, talk uh, to everyone. And uh, she is uh, a cabinet minister that uh, is spoken of glowingly from uh, everyone from Doug Ford to Jason Kenney, for that matter. And, you know, she doesn't come across as much as a, as a politician, uh, as someone who sort of has a vocation, uh, which is kind of refreshing uh, to have in such a high-powered position, also a deputy prime minister, as we know. And I think she's had, you know, sort of countless uh, success stories uh, that she can point to as well. I mean, we'll see. Uh, because uh, she'll really be tested, I think, in, in the year to come, for sure, and when we finally get a budget, and uh, other than just sort of fiscal and economic updates. But um, based on everything I've seen from her so far, I think that was the best political choice of the year. Okay. Bruce? I think the the combination of putting money into the hands of Canadians and small businesses and then ordering lots of vaccines, I think, if I look at those two things as being kind of the bookends of or the central elements of the pandemic management, uh, it's hard not to recognize that if the government hadn't moved as quickly as it did to reassure people that they're going to have some income, um, we could have had social unrest. We could have had more people spreading the disease more quickly and more deaths as a consequence. So I think that that decision saved lives. And I think that the decisions to order uh, vaccines in significant quantities um, is something that, uh, you know, when I look at how our country handled the situation compared to others, uh, it's hard not to feel like that. Was Those were good political choices made by the people that, uh, that run government. Here's mine. Um, and it was the decision to close the Canada-U.S. border. Now, it's been, what, nine months now since they did that? That saved lives. There's no question that that saved lives. You just have to look at what's happened in the States. Um, and the government has stuck to its guns. Now, look, there, there are lots of loopholes, and we know that on a, a number of areas. But can you imagine if it hadn't been closed and what could have, would have resulted if that had happened? Um, so it's not perfect. But it was the right thing to do. And, you know, make no, make no mistake about it. That was, that was a political choice. And I'm sure there was, uh, there was much discussion and debate around that and trying to ensure that, the, you know, certain elements of the trade between the two biggest trading partners in the world continued. But they closed the border, and it's still closed. And, like, every month they extended another month. Um, and, uh, you know, good for them on, on that decision. I mean, there, there are going to be enough decisions that we're, 
that there were already questions raised about. And as time goes on and we find out more and more of what happened over the last year, um, there will be more questions raised. But on that one, it seems to me they did the right thing. Um, listen, I wish I could declare a winner out of all these questions and, <laughs> and the answers you gave because they were all, uh, they were all pretty good. Um, and they were all actually very good. And they, it, what's surprising is in almost every case, I think there weren't duplicates, um, uh, which is, uh, which is, pre- is pretty good as well. So Kathleen, we thank you, uh, enormously for your uh, contribution and in joining us to, uh, uh, to smoke mirrors and the truth for this special edition today, and we wish you obviously great luck in the uh, in the year ahead on uh, West of Center. Thanks again. Well, let me just say that it you know as I was saying in responding to Bruce on Twitter that it was sort of great to have a reunion, and because it you know it sort of feels like that because I think the last time the three of us spoke, there were it was more than just the three of us, but I think it was at issue in 2011 and uh so and i know you and i've spoken since then peter but it's you know it's great to sort of join forces again uh talk politics but more than anything else talk about life and uh and i'm so glad to see both of you thriving and uh as always so uh thanks so very much for the invite i really enjoyed it and to you yeah, Kathy, too. I just want to add my thanks to uh, what Peter said. Uh, I uh, always love talking with you, even those brief moments that we could chat when I would uh, be in Calgary and step into the Calgary studio. Always good to see you there. Always felt, you know, better about the quality of journalism whenever I saw you doing what you do. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to have connected again and wish you all the best for the holidays and the new year. Great. Well, listen, both you, of you have uh, have a great uh, holiday season. And try to uh, try to enjoy some downtown uh, down time, even if we can't spend it the way we normally do uh, at this time of year. Uh, so, thank you both. And look, that ends this uh, special edition of uh, Smoke Mirrors and the Truth on the Bridge Daily. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow, and tomorrow is actually a contest where we'll be giving away a signed uh, copy of Extraordinary Canadians. The contest, so get your entries in. A lot came in last night, but, uh, you know, if you want to enter the contest, what I'm looking for is what your what your Christmas message would be, right? We all know the Queen's message and what how important that is. So I'm looking, what would you say if you were afforded that opportunity to give a message to the country on Christmas Day? I'm look, just looking for a sentence or two, three at the most, so send it in the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. So thanks again for listening today. Been great to uh, to be with you. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This has been the Bridge Daily. We'll be back in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.